my favorite things about the Advent season with messianic psalms like that one in particular is like how, how normal we are with it. Like the psalm says like, oh, God's going to fill the nations with corpses. And we're like, preach it again, pastor. Like that. This is, this is normal. Like one week, we're like we're in Psalm 23, and it's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And we're like, yeah, straight up. And the next week, we're like, yeah, he's going to shatter kings and corpses everywhere. And we're like, mm, amen. Like we all, we all, like is that anyone's life verse? If, I, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm talking about your life verse, safe place, okay. It's, yeah, and if you're, and if you're new, like this is your first time here or in church, um, at some point in the past five minutes is probably the point like when the person who invited you like leaned over to you and was like, the Bible's not always like this. <laughs> like, Jesus is nice sometimes. I promise um, the, the Bible is often about this weird. I just want to own it up front. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 110, um, it's a strange one. Uh, there's a shadowy guy named Melchizedek. It's hard to figure out who's speaking. Uh, it starts with the phrase, the Lord says to my Lord. Uh, Jesus shatters kings and f- fills the nations with corpses. And then he's like drinking water because he's dehydrated. The whole thing is just strange, isn't it? It's, not, it's probably not a contender to be your favorite psalm in the Bible. Um, here's the weird thing. For the first 400 years of church history, it was the favorite psalm in the Bible. It was kind of their version of Psalm 23, the one we all have memorized in some weird hybrid of the King James and the NIV. They, they kind of had it memorized the same way. If you look in the New Testament cover to cover, you will find that Psalm 110, that psalm, is referenced directly 22 times. It only, it's only seven verses long, 22 times, making it the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it to silence the Pharisees. Uh, Paul quotes it to defend the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Peter quotes it as the crescendo of his sermon at Pentecost. One moment the crowd is making fun of Peter, asking if he's drunk, and then Peter's like, no, it's like 10 in the morning, and there's like that. They're like, that doesn't matter. But we don't, we don't know what you're up to, right? And then Peter quotes Psalm 110, and all the crowd can say afterwards is, brother, what shall we do? It's quoted all over the place. The, the author of Hebrews spends chapters exegeting Psalm 110. Uh, This psalm is directly quoted in both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The two creeds that basically give us the basis of Christian theology and thought. And then finally, historians over the first 400 years of church history, all the examples of this psalm we've seen quoted, many of them seem to be in children's language. Meaning that parents had their children memorize it. So it's very reasonable to believe that if you were a child in the early church, you would not just know Psalm 110, you would have it memorized cold. This psalm, (laughs) with Melchizedek, the corpses, and the shattering. Like, that psalm. And so this morning, what I really want to do is just explore this mysterious, strange psalm and ask the question, why did the early church cling to it? What is it about Psalm 110 that worked its way deep into the soul, into the bones of the early church? Why did they need it so badly? Why, why did they find it so magnetic? And so if you see Psalm 110 and your eyes like glaze over because it seems unbelievably complicated, um, the bad news is it is complicated. The good news is that verse 1 summarizes the whole thing. 
And so if you understand verse 1, those first three lines, you understand all of Psalm 110. It's like David's thesis he gives to you in that first little verse. And then the next six verses are just all of his proofs. All of the ways he's going to unpack that thought in verse 1. And Psalm 110 starts this way, David speaking. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until or while I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 isn't so much a prayer as it is an overheard conversation. David overhears a conversation. King David of Israel overhears a conversation between the Lord and my Lord. Let's start with the easy one, the first one, Lord in all caps. When you see the word Lord in all caps in your Bible, what what name is that referencing? Yahweh, God, right? There's this long tradition where to speak the name of Yahweh um, seems to some people to be irreverent. So often in Scripture, we'll see it simply replaced with Lord. Often if you see a Hebrew scholar, like read aloud from the Hebrew Scriptures— when they reach the name Yahweh, they will say Lord out loud as an act of reverence. And so Yahweh, God Almighty, says to my Lord, and here's where things get weird. David is king, and Israel's kings are not elected. They are handpicked by God. David holds the most power humanly possible in Israel, And my Lord in Hebrew is the word Adonai, which literally means master. It means king. It it means sir. It means boss. It means a higher level of status and authority than your own. If you refer to someone as Adonai, you are naming them as far more authoritative than you are. So little little quiz. Um, Who in Israel is David's Lord? Nobody. He's king. He's handpicked by God to be king. Who would he be used to hearing people refer to as Lord? Him. (laughs) David's king. He has all the authority a human being in Israel could possibly have, handpicked by God at a young age to bear God's authority on behalf of him in Israel. So for David to even speak the words, my Lord, my master, is scandalous. To the, to, in context, it would have seemed as though David is abdicating God's given responsibility. But something else is going on. David overhears a conversation between God Almighty and a shadowy, mysterious figure that David only knows as my master. With our New Testament eyes, we know it's referring to Jesus. But there seems to be some mystery to David. I love this. It's like David overhears like a secretive conversation between God the Father and Jesus. Like God's having a secretive little conversation with King Jesus in the heavens, and he leaves the door a little cracked open, and he allows King David to hear. How about that? And what is it that the Lord, that God Almighty, says to Jesus? He says this, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What kind of person in context would sit at the right hand of God? A king. Kings were said to sit at the right hand of God. Kings represented God to the people. That's that's their whole job, basically, is to hold divine authority and represent it to the people. And so by David saying, God Almighty says to my master, sit at my right hand, 
he's saying, I give up my seat. King David says, I recognize there is someone that God has placed in the kingly place, and it's not me. It's like the opposite of Jesus' disciples saying, God in the new kingdom, or Jesus in the new kingdom, can we sit at your right hand? David goes, someone else is sitting there, and it's not me. To sit at my right hand, and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In context, one of the most common ways to artistically depict a king was sitting on a throne with their enemies' necks beneath their feet. It's a kingly image. Anyone know which kind of king was most commonly depicted that way? That's a question you'll never know. The answer. That, that, was, that was rhetorical. An Egyptian pharaoh. A little Easter egg from Israel's own story. So, what, so how do we deal with these first two verses? They seem complex, but they're actually quite simple. God says to my master, you are king. All of Psalm 110 has one very simple point. It seems complex, but the point is terribly simple. David overhears a mysterious coronation ceremony between God Almighty and Jesus Christ. He overhears this mysterious coronation ceremony where God says to Jesus, you are king. You are king definitively and absolutely. And the next six verses just read like a nonstop coronation celebration. The other six verses just unpack the particular kind of king Jesus is, starting in verse 2. Your scepter goes forth from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus may sit at the right hand of God in the throne room, but his influence is not restricted to the throne room. The influence of King Jesus goes out from Zion, out from the throne room, out from Jerusalem, and covers the whole earth. This is David saying, the influence of King Jesus is not just restricted to the place he sits by God, it goes everywhere. And Jesus is a secure enough king that his rule is not compromised in hostile territory. The influence of Jesus remains unthreatened even when surrounded by enemies. King Jesus' authority is not fragile. Jesus is not a fragile king who needs to be surrounded by a bunch of approval and attaboys for him to feel okay. His influence remains uncompromised and dominant even when surrounded by opposition. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of the youth will be yours. Everyone's favorite verse. Um, if that one's confusing to you, um, you're in good company. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, once said that if he could understand one verse in the Bible, he'd like it to be this one. <laughs> um, like in his commentary, it's basically a giant like, I don't know. But he does say this. We often think of Jesus as tired and old and frustrated, but he is not. It's like the zeal and the passion of his youth is always his, renewed every morning, just like dew on the grass. In the Bible, we see a really common pattern with kings, where their rule starts out really, really well, and then falls apart towards the end. Solomon started out by asking God for wisdom. David starting out, started out by killing Goliath. Saul started out as a powerful general. But each one of them fell into cynicism, fragility, and narcissism as they got older. Saul becomes a narcissist. David makes his massive error with Bathsheba. And Solomon becomes a, basically a warmonger. They lose sight of the zeal and identity of their Lord. Not so with Jesus. His youth 
His kingly youth is always his. That great start the other kings had, that is Jesus' consistent mode of operation. He's not a king who starts off really strong and gets worse as he goes. He's not a king who becomes corrupted by power and loses sight of the goodness of his rule. He is king in youth and zeal and passion forever. Spurgeon once said this, we have an old sword, it is not a rusty sword. It's, and he says, Jesus, when Jesus speaks, he speaks as though he never spoke before. It's always new, like the dew in the morning. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He won't regret it. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who's naming their first kid Melchizedek? Jill? No, okay. Um, Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. You're forgiven if you don't know him. We meet him in Genesis 14. Abraham, the covenant father of God's people, is walking around in Canaan, the future promised land, and he comes across a city named Shalem, future Jerusalem. Got it? Out of Jerusalem walks a man named Melchizedek. And the curious thing about him is that Melchizedek holds two offices that are usually very carefully separated from each other. He's a king, he's the king of Jerusalem, and he's also a priest. He's a king and priest. His, his name even hints at this. In Hebrew, his name has a hyphen in the middle of it. That first word is melech, which means king, and the second word is sedek, which means righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. Not exactly a great separation of church and state, is it? <laughs> A righteous king, a priestly king, both offices held together. Why does David bring up Melchizedek? He's saying King Jesus can be trusted to be both good and powerful. King Jesus does not compromise character or goodness for the sake of power and influence. Jesus can be trusted with both goodness and power. He's not another ruler who sacrifices his character to get power. Jesus is not another ruler who becomes seduced by authority and forgets about righteousness. He's not another leader barreling towards a disqualifying scandal. He's not another authority figure who mistreats the vulnerable and then uses his power to silence their voices. He's not another politician on the debate stage taking cheap shots at their op opponents, sacrificing characters so they can garner power for a good reason. Isn't that good news? He holds goodness and power together. That our king, King Jesus, in his dominion and authority, never sacrifices goodness. As powerful as he is, ruling in the midst of his enemies, he never stoops to their level. His character is incorruptible. His goodness is never ending. He holds goodness and power together, which is, I think, just like the gospel right now in our current political climate. He holds goodness and power together. He can be trusted with complete authority. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment, filling the nations with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. I'll be honest, I get uncomfortable with violent stuff in the Bible. I think you're supposed to. I think it's supposed to rattle. If you're super comfortable with that, I have some questions for you. Um, you, you're not, I, I don't, I actually really don't want to know the answers. Um, I, we get uncomfortable when God comes across as vengeful or violent, but where I've really come to is this. I am so grateful we have a king who is more upset about evil than we are. 
in, in, in the face of evil and brokenness and injustice, Jesus is far more worked up about it than you are. Jesus is not a king who merely virtue signals on social media when something bad happens. He is a king who takes action and takes responsibility for the presence of evil within his kingdom. He's a king who takes responsibility when something is off in his kingdom, and he steps in and fixes it himself. He keeps his garden well, to use that metaphor. He takes responsibility. Jesus is not a passive king hoping that the kingdom's okay. He is an active king who steps in, and he does it to a fundamental level. It says he'll shatter chiefs. The Hebrew word for chief is also the word for head. Which brings us all the way back to Genesis 3, the first messianic prophecy in the whole Bible. Right after Adam and Eve get themselves kicked out of the garden because of a really tricky little snake, God makes this prophecy. To the serpent, he says, you will wound Jesus, but he will crush your head. He will crush your head, you'll, you'll bruise his heel. Jesus does what Adam should have done. Whereas Adam stood by in passivity and just allowed the serpent to seduce his bride, Jesus steps in and just does what Adam should have done. He kills the dumb snake. <laughs> he defends his bride, the church. Jesus does not stand by in passivity and just hope that things work out okay. He takes full action, steps in, and actually deals with the evil in his kingdom. He gets the snakes out of his garden. And he does it thoroughly. He is a king who sets things right, all the while never compromising his own goodness or righteousness. And after all of this, the shattering, the, the Melchizedek, the, the ruling in the midst of enemies, Jesus isn't worn out and cynical. He will drink from a brook, by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Jesus isn't exhausted by being king. He doesn't get disillusioned. He doesn't get cynical. After being so exposed to the evil and brokenness of the world, he doesn't get disenchanted or disillusioned. He drinks from a book, brook, he rests, he lifts up his head in confidence. We have a confident, peaceful king, and we know that truly living under King Jesus, that's the fruit, right? We experience confident peace ourselves when we see Jesus this way. And so Psalm 110, Jesus is king, full stop. The, for all of Psalm 110's complexity, we could spend years in Psalm 110. Free sermon series idea. Um, maybe not. But we could spend years in this psalm. It's Jesus is king, every verse. Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king. It's the whole point of Psalm 110. Why did the early church need it? Why did the early church need a psalm that was just a coronation ceremony for King Jesus. Why did the early church need a psalm that declared Jesus as king? Because they lived in a world that seemed to constantly declare that he was not. The early church did not need Psalm 110 because they had such a thorough, indestructible belief that Jesus was king. They needed Psalm 110 because the world in all of its complexity has a fun little habit of poking at that belief the fear, the anxiety, the complexities of everyday life, they, send, they, they seem to put up rebuttals against the thought that Jesus is king. It makes it a little bit harder to truly and thoroughly believe. A couple hundred years ago, archaeologists discovered a building in Rome, and they found what is now widely considered to be the earliest depiction of Jesus hanging on the cross. 
It's scratched into the plaster of a building wall. It's now um, in a museum in Rome. Um, so here it is. On the left is a picture of it. On the right is a tracing. The inscription on it says, Alexamenos worships his god. We don't know who Alexamenos is. I'm going to call him Alex. But what we do know is this. One little disquieting fact about him. The plaster that this inscription was found on was found in an emperor's page boy charter school. In other words, this was a place that was filled with young children. Most historians believe that this was carved into the wall not by an adult, but by a very young child intended to bully another young child. You see, this isn't a reverent depiction of Jesus on the cross, is it? It's graffiti. That's a donkey on the cross, and the implication is exactly what you think it is. One small child scratching into the wall. Alexa Menos worships his God, this foolish donkey on the cross. Imagine this for a moment. Young Alexa Menos, young Alex, would have had Psalm 110 drilled into his mind in his parents' house church. He would have had Psalm 110 likely memorized at like the gut level. He could recite it. And so while in his mind, Jesus is king, is playing on repeat, his eyes taken graffiti meant to bully him for that exact belief. Young Alexamenos probably knew that Jesus was king, but at the same time, he struggled to experience it as true in his day-to-day life. The complexities and the brokenness and the pain of everyday life made the belief Jesus is king hard to believe. Friends, Jesus is king is easy to say, but it is hard to truly believe. This names something in our experience, doesn't it? We come to church on Sundays and we confess together that Jesus is king, but then we go out into our complicated lives full of decisions to make, challenging relationships to navigate, sin to repent of, depression to navigate. In our fear of the future, anxiety for the present, and regret of the past, it all comes together and makes it fairly difficult to actually experience Jesus as king. You might know it in your head. You might sign your name under the belief Jesus is king. Do you experience it? Do you experience the peace of it? Do you experience the confident peace of living under a king with the dominion of Jesus? It's a difficult thing to get in our bones. Easy to get in our heads, hard to get in our bones. We see things in the news like the atrocities and tragedies happening in Gaza. Women and children seemingly mindlessly dead. Does not seem to offer the rational conclusion that Jesus is a good king. There's a fight to believe in the midst of believing that Jesus is king. We sit under Psalm 110 on Sundays and offer amens to the statement that Jesus is king, but then it feels like we undergo a weekly deconstruction from Monday to Saturday. And we come back on Sundays kind of shell-shocked from having our belief that Jesus is king assaulted. And we walk back into this place and we have to contend with the reality it is all too possible to believe something is true and to struggle with believing it isn't. It is possible to hold belief and unbelief together at the same time, even with something so simple as Jesus is king. 
I think of Mark chapter 9, um, there's a dad who has a son possessed by a demon, and the demon throws the son into fire, harms the child, um, and the dad is obviously just gut-rended over this happening. So he brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus, and he goes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, if you can, will you deliver my son and have mercy on us? On one hand, the dad has enough faith that Jesus is king and has power to know that Jesus has dominion over demons. On one hand, he has quite a bit of belief. He goes to Jesus for a reason. On the other hand, he says, if you can. Jesus mentions this, and the dad responds, I think, in the most relatable line in the Bible to me. He says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, he, he goes, Jesus, I'm a walking contradiction. I believe that you're king, but it's my kid. So I'm having a hard time putting all my chips out there. Like, Jesus, I believe, but the fear is hitting really close to home, and I don't know how to get rid of my unbelief right now, but I'm offering myself to you as a contradiction. Can you help? Belief and unbelief can exist in the same space. Even with things that you thoroughly believe, like Jesus is king, you can believe something and still fight to believe it. You can believe something and spend your whole life wrestling to actually believe it in your soul. To put it simply, belief and unbelief that Jesus is king can exist at the same time. And if you're in that place this morning, you have in your head faith and belief that says Jesus is king, and you believe that. But in your life, you struggle to experience that as true. You, you feel the complicated nature of your life. You feel the messiness of real life. And you're, and you're struggling to believe Jesus is king all at the, all at the same time. Um, you are in good company, <laughs> probably in this room. Most of us, if not all of us, I would say. I doubt very few Christians have a very neat and tidy belief that Jesus is king. It's probably fraught with struggle and fight and wrestling. Jesus isn't waiting for you to fix your faith. It's not like you're here, here's your struggle to believe, and Jesus is waiting on the other side for you to figure it out and get some better theology in your head. He's in the struggle. And so if you're in the place this morning where you believe, but yet you have unbelief, and you're like, Jesus, help my unbelief, that is not a threat to your faith. That is where faith happens. That is not distance from God. It is incredible proximity, which understandably kind of unstabilizes us. Proximity to God's presence rarely gives us a sense of like incredible stability. It's usually, it feels like you're shaking. So if you look at Jesus and your eyes are not quite as full of faith as they are full of desperation to want to believe, Psalm 110 has an invitation for you. It's buried right in the middle of it. There's one line that speaks to us. Blink and you'll miss it. It's verse 3. It says this. Your people will freely offer themselves. Or your people offer themselves freely. Only line in the whole psalm that is actually directed to you. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, this phrase is used for loyal subjects of a king willingly volunteering themselves to go off to war. In the book of Judges, we see it quite a bit when God raises up a judge and the people say, I will go and serve. It's, it's this heart on your sleeve, boots on the ground, 
deeply practical moment. It's not about thinking or ideas. It's about your feet on the ground saying, I will offer myself over to King Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying this, or David is saying this, to grow in faith, to grow in deep, honest faith that Jesus is truly king and to experience the peaceful confidence that comes as fruit you have to make real-world decisions that only make sense because Jesus is king. To actually experience, and I would say to even believe that Jesus is king, you can't think your way there. You can't think your way or reason your way into believing that Jesus is king. You have to live your way there. The way you make decisions, the way you make choices, the way you confront your fear, that is the space where you build your theology that Jesus is king. Sometimes you have to live something out in your life before you believe it fully. Sometimes you have to actually live a certain way to build the belief in your head that that thing is true. We typically think this goes the other way around. We typically think if I can get my brain working right, if I can get enough theology, enough data, enough sermons, enough podcasts into my head, then I can apply those things to my life and my life will then look better because my brain worked right. Doesn't work that way. Well, sometimes it does. But most of the time, it works your life up. Most, all, most of the commands of Jesus are not think differently, it's live differently for a reason. The way we live does something to us. The things we do do something to us. To build a belief like Jesus is king and to truly experience it, you have to make decisions in your real life that only make sense because Jesus is king. As uh, James K.A. Smith memorably said, you can't think your way to holiness. Apparently, we can't think our ways. We can't think the way into Jesus is king. You have to live your way into it. You can't build a relationship on theory. When you have a belief in your head that is untested in the real world, when we have things like Jesus is king just living in our minds, but we're not taking risky action in our life to actually practice it, you know what a belief without application is? Theory. And to quote Oppenheimer from the movie Oppenheimer, theory will only take you so far. Uh, In the middle of COVID, Um, one of the things that got me the most excited, and this will tell you about how bored I was, uh, was SpaceX launching a manned mission. Um, Anyone watch it? Just, can we hang out? Um, No one gets us. Um, So SpaceX, um, like the fun, cool new guy on the block with rockets and space exploration, um, they built a rocket, and they put people in it, and then they made it go up. I, it's good that I'm not a scientist, I know. But they, 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 they built a rocket, put people in it, they launched it. And while they are filling the rocket, they are interviewing Elon Musk, the CEO of SpaceX. And they're like, do you get nervous that you're basically putting human beings on top of a bomb you designed? And Elon responds and says, of course I get nervous. He goes, those are, those are lives. But he says this, but for all of our theory, for all of our math, for all of our concepts, at some point you just have to put someone in the rocket. At some point you have to pressure test your concepts. At some point you have to practice your theory in real life. He goes, otherwise we just have theory and we won't experience space. Faith often works the same way. 
when we keep beliefs in our head that have no implications or decision-making power in the real world, especially when that belief is Jesus is king, we end up with theory in our heads, and then we wonder why we don't experience it in our souls. We love to theologize about all the wonderfully rich details of Psalm 110, and I think you should. But today I ask you, do you offer yourself freely to the king? Do you offer yourself freely? The way you make decisions, the way you make choices, the way you perceive your life, the way you react to pain, do you offer yourself freely to the king? You see, Jesus wants us to grow. He wants us to grow in our belief that he is king. He understands it's hard to grow. He actually wants you to use the faith that you have in your head. Faith does no good to sitting in your head. You have to use it. You have to use it in your decisions and use it in your life. And to do that always beckons us beyond our zone of control. Which is hard. Because control remains the most effective coping mechanism we have for fear. When we live highly fearful lives, we tend to make all of our decisions based on what gets us more control and more stability. Friends, the reason that so many of us struggle to experience the peace of knowing Jesus as king is because we have set up our lives as systems that we perfectly control. We got the degree, we went to the school, we got the career that would give us the most stability. And now every choice we make is all about stability and comfort and what we think is peace. To experience Jesus as king, you have to step outside of your kingdom. To step into his on uncertain ground that will only hold you if Jesus is king. Um, John Mark Comer says this, not on the slide because I came to me last night, which is inconvenient. Jesus comes to us when we are stripped of our control, when we are weak and vulnerable and needy, like most of the world. <laughs> They're not up in their heads wondering if they believe in God, they're telling you stories about the power of God in their life. Jesus comes to us when we are stripped of our control, when we are weak, when we are needy, when we're vulnerable, when we're human. Jesus comes to us when we are stripped of our control. I think of Peter in the boat. Um, there is a scene from the Gospels where all the disciples are in a boat, and there's a storm, and they look out, and they see Jesus walking on the water, right? And in that moment, the 12 disciples see Jesus walking on the water, and I think, in theological language, they have an oh shoot moment, right? Where they're like, oh, he's king, right? He has, look, even the wind and the waves obey him. Look at his dominion over the water. He can walk on the water in the middle of a storm. Who is this king? That moment, they have, they have theology and faith that Jesus is king shoved into their heads. But Peter gets out of the boat. Peter takes the risk. Peter says, I have a theory that Jesus is king based on what I'm seeing here. He goes, let's pressure test it. And so he puts a foot out of the boat onto water, knowing the only thing that will hold his weight is Jesus being king. He goes all in on the risky belief that Jesus is actually king and that this isn't a trick. He goes all in and he sinks. I love Peter. He talks too much and he makes mistakes, which is why I identify with him. Um, here's what I love about it. Was Peter ready to get out of the boat? No. <laughs> he was obviously so unprepared. 
He was so unready to walk on water. He was so unprepared to do faith at that level. He's punching way above his weight when it comes to faith. He is making a really risky, risky decision by doing what he did. He's not ready, so he sinks. But where is Jesus? He pulls him up. Often we don't make risky decisions that we feel like the Spirit is leading us to make because we are afraid of what would happen if it all went wrong. Jesus will pick you up. A couple weeks ago, um, Dane wrote a blog for a men's ministry, subscribe, um, titled, It's Okay to Fall Apart. We live our lives in fear of falling apart, forgetting that Jesus is very good at walking with people who fall apart. It's okay to fall apart. Peter did. He sank, and Jesus pulls him back up. And I think we read disappointment into Jesus in that story. I think Jesus is stoked. <laughs> and I think if that ever happened again, which maybe it did, I think Peter's faith was probably a little bit stronger the next time around. Because he did the risky thing, stepped outside of his zone of control, stepped onto ground that would only hold him if Jesus was king. Went all in, made, he risked, he risked it just to believe that Jesus is king, and his faith grew as a result. Peter did not sit in the boat and be like, okay, I want to go see Jesus. Let's do some hard theology. I got like one minute until he leaves. Like, let's just do some hard theology in the moment, right? No, he's like, he goes, I'm willing. I'm willing to risk it. Ronald Rollheiser said this, Jesus does not call the ready, he calls the willing. Jesus does not call the ready, he calls the willing. Being ready is overrated. If you were ready, it wouldn't be faith. If you were ready, it wouldn't grow your faith. It wouldn't grow your soul. If you were ready, there'd be precious little room for relationship and trust with Jesus Christ. Being unready is kind of the point. <laughs> your belief in King Jesus would not grow if you were perfectly ready all the time. Jesus doesn't call the ready. He calls the willing the, the, the question is not, are you ready to step out in faith? The question is not, are you ready to live in such a way where Jesus is king? The question is not, are you ready to pressure test it? The question is, are you willing? So friends, are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to make decisions not based on gut instinct, but based on listening prayer with the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to name and confront your fear and tell yourself gospel stories in response? Are you willing to drag that hidden sin into the light? We think that, oh, if I do that, my life will fall apart. I'm not ready. Jesus doesn't call the ready. He calls the willing. You don't have to be ready to be faithful. You have to be willing to be faithful. We think that staying in our comfort zone will give us peace. It is risking it that will give you peace. Because then you will live under the reality that Jesus is king, which is all of our peace. Are you willing? Are you willing to confront your fear? Are, are, you willing to, are you willing to follow through on that thing you have felt the Spirit prompting you to do, but you have been ignoring? Are you willing to make the choice you know you've needed to make? Are you willing to make the move you know the Spirit is calling you to do? Are you willing to live at the bleeding edge of your control and confidence? Are you willing to acknowledge the fact that many of us have built lives on control and stability and to know Christ is king, you're going to have to risk. You're going to have to get out of the boat. 
Friends, our souls only learn to be at peace from freely offering ourselves to King Jesus. We think that we get peace from control. We get it from trust. Just like Jesus in verse 7, drinking from the brook, lifting up his head in confidence. If you want to experience Jesus as king deep in your soul, in your bones, and in your actual lived experiences, you have to get out of the boat. You have to step into his kingdom and out of your illusion of control. You have to give up stability to some degree and risk with King Jesus and say, the only way this ground holds me is if you are king. Let's find out. Are you willing? God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the truth that you are king. And under a good king, there is peace. You yourself are our peace having won for us relationship with God and have given us your righteousness. Help us to get out of the boat. Help us to lay down the careful systems we have created and help us to risk it with you, trusting that you are king. We love you. We need you. Amen.